is Our American Stories, where we love to tell stories about everything, from the arts to commerce to history, and sometimes, well, sometimes some tough stories and some sad stories about loss, eulogies, and then, well, whatever happened to whomever? Whatever happened to that guy, that girl, that actor, that actress, that musician? We love those stories, too, and this is one of them. Like his spectacular passes and jaw-dropping runs, Michael Vick's path of redemption, well, it seemed endless. His life, it was a dance between triumph and trouble on and off the field. This four-time Pro Bowl quarterback was the most thrilling player of a generation, and he became the most reviled. Vick grew up in the roughest part of Newport News, Virginia, also known as Bad News. Michael lived in the Ridley Circle housing projects where gangs, drugs, and pit bulls were just white noise. It was here where he witnessed two local boys become professional athletes, NFL quarterback Aaron Brooks and NBA All-Star Allen Iverson. Vic knew football was his way out. By 2004, at the age of 24, Vic was the NFL's main attraction, Atlanta Falcons owner Arthur Blank rewarded Vic with a record $130 million contract. His dad, he didn't pay any attention to the kids. You know, I did everything. My dad liked to run the streets. You know, my dad liked to do his thing. My dad really went down the wrong path. Growing up with a dad that was on drugs, that was abusive to his mother. It's some things that he probably wanted from that relationship, but just couldn't get. It's like, is this the role that I take in life? Is this the role that I want to take in life? With the uh, first selection in the 2001 NFL Draft, the Atlanta Falcons select Michael Vick, quarterback, Virginia Tech. Oh, baby, the Vick era is here. There's just not that many that can play quarterback the way he could play quarterback. Oh, what a throw by Vic! It just looked like something out of a video game. Out there freestyling, just doing crazy things. This guy is a big-time player. He was just so much faster than anybody else on that field. I'm sure when he was a kid who played tag, he was never it. like having Barry Sanders back there as your quarterback. The most dynamic, athletic quarterback that there ever was. And almost being like a, a superhero, you know, in the town that needed the superhero. You have just seen Michael Jordan of the NFL. This guy had everything. And he risked it all and ended up losing it all because he wanted to have dogs fight against each other. What planet are we on? I have a developing story to tell our viewers about right now. I was actually on the golf course in Atlanta. Yeah. Oh my gosh, look at that thing. Right down the middle, good job, Mike. Well, my best friend called me and told me I knew it was over. You know, the things that I was trying to hide for so many years or thought I could get away with uh, was now coming to light. How could a football star making literally millions of dollars allegedly get involved in something like this? Alec 
allegations of hanging, shooting, body slamming, even electrocuting dogs to death as part of a multi-state underground dog fighting operation. Is a record-breaking NFL superstar, a former number one draft pick, losing a $120 million contract over dog fights? Michael Vick pled guilty to federal dogfighting charges. Approximately six to eight dogs were killed by various methods, including hanging and drowning, and then buried on the property. 66 pit bulls were saved. Michael Vick spent two months in Northern Neck Regional Jail in Richmond, Virginia, and another 16 months in Leavenworth Federal Prison. And then he was released. Well, recently, Michael Vick was invited to speak at Oakwood University Church in Huntsville, Alabama. It is here where Vick tells his story. It's the story of a man who seemed to have everything and then had to start from nothing all over again. Vick's story starts with his childhood and the moment he knew he had a special gift to play football. My upbringing was like, you know, probably like 70% of uh, most, you know, African-American young kids. You know, I grew up in poverty, um, you know, very poverty-stricken area, um, you know, surrounded by a lot of friends, a lot of things going on in the neighborhood that I grew up in, a lot of influences. You know, just the ordinary lifestyle, you know, of a, of a you know, young black kid, um, but, you know, with aspirations. I knew I had a gift, you know, when I was about seven years old. Like, every day my motivation was to go outside and, you know, do something better to try to better myself at the game that I love at such a young age. And uh, I didn't understand my passion, you know, back then when I was when I was that young. I just wanted to have fun doing it. But everybody around me always, you know, told me that I looked different from everybody else. And I think it was because, you know, at a young age, I always practiced. Michael Vick knew that in order to have a life that was going to be different than those who grew up around him, he had to be different. His grandmother offered him some wisdom. I know it was a lot of challenges growing up in the neighborhood that I was in, and, you know, I always felt like, you know, I needed an edge. I needed to have a different visualization of what everybody else in the neighborhood did. I wanted to be different. You know, even though we grew up together, even though we all ran together, had fun together, I wanted to be different, so... You know, my aspirations was to make it to the NFL. And I told my grandmother that at a young age, and I told her I would do anything to get there. And she told me, if you're going to be successful in life, you, got to, you have to find God at some point. And, you know, that always stuck with me. So I'm like, at a young age, I'm like, what can I do to incorporate God into my life? When I don't know, I really know anything about, you know, God or, you know, the Bible or how to interpret it. And I just came to the conclusion, I just put the Bible under my pillow and sleep with it under my pillow until something good happened. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story, a life, well, lost and then gained. Michael Vick's story, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories. We continue with the story of Michael Vick. The rest of the story, as most of you probably have heard about his athletic prowess and how he squandered it all, I'm sure you heard what he did to those dogs. And you hated him for it, because the country hated this guy. And so we had just heard from him at a church, and this was him telling his story to the, the people in that church, and he's going around the country telling his story now to young people, old people, anyone who will listen. Actually, how did you get there, right? How do you get from being the highest paid athlete in NFL history to killing dogs? And what's going on in your head that you'd allow that to happen? We just heard about the advice his grandmother had given him, that if you want to be successful in life, you've got to bring God into your life. Well, let's return to Michael Vick and his story. He was the star quarterback in high school and chose Virginia Tech as the college that would launch him as a star. But like all great QBs, Vick had a backup. A plan A and a plan B. Plan B, I wanted to uh, major in criminology. It was really my backup plan. My plan was plan A. I was to make it, you know, to make it to the NFL. And, you know, I was so determined to do whatever it took to make that happen that I couldn't see my plan B. So my determination was so strong that I wouldn't allow anything to come into my life to negate that. After reaching the highest heights of Plan A, Vic fell to the unimaginable Plan Z, a life in prison. He left behind his wife and his three kids. Well, I think I lost focus. Um, and it's so easy to do. You know, you, you, you feel like you, you know, once you receive all these blessings, you feel like you've arrived. And I, I can honestly say I felt as if there was nothing else that needed to be done, but I, I lost sight of Everything that got me to that point, you know, my beliefs, you know, no more sleeping with the Bible under the pillow, no more saying my prayers at night. My, my grandmother instilled that in my brothers and sisters and my entire family. You know, ask God for something that you, you really want, and you never know when you may get it. And I did that all the way up until I was drafted. Uh, once I got drafted, you know, I started living a different life. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't rigorous. It wasn't, you know, crazy. You know, I, I did everything to try to make sure I, you know, did what I was supposed to do. And at the same time, I had, you know, I was straddling the fence. You know, I always told myself I didn't want to be a product of my environment. I always wanted my environment to be a product of me. But at the same time, I brought some of those same values with me. When I turned 23, 24, and I had some money, and I was able to, you know, just do anything that I wanted to do and, you know, lost focus and, and uh, ended up ending up ended up in prison. Vic responded to the notion that his punishment was due to discrimination. You know, first and foremost, you know, we all got to make decisions. And I think that's what, you know, I had every right to do the right thing and not do the wrong thing. And it, it's so easy to do the wrong thing. Like, I mean, it's, it's the easiest thing to do. You know, it's hard when you got to make a decision based on, um, you know, a positive outcome. And, you know, I had influences around me, but... You know, I think as a grown man at 24 years old and, you know, everything that I received in my life, you know, I was supposed to take a step back and really look at my life as a whole and the people that I affected and the people that, you know, really cared about me. You know, I lot the Atlanta Falcons organization, you know, my mom and dad, um, my co college coaches, you know, anybody who, you know, put time and effort into me and, and la you know, last of all, you know, God. The reason I really was in the position, the reason I'm here today. It's the easiest thing to do, the wrong thing. 
It's just the easiest thing to do. And that's all of us, folks. Vic also said that, well, losing his freedom was tough. Quote, I still think I went to prison because there were certain people I needed to get away from. So it was bigger than dogfighting. It was done to bring awareness to bad. It was done to show that regardless of who you are, you will get punished and you are not above the law. And for me, it was a message of don't lose sight of how you got here. Stay humble. Here's Vic on day one in prison. When I first got into prison, when they first uh, closed the door, it was like um, it was like a dream. And, you know, at that point, I felt like everything in, in life, you know, has to have an expiration date that's not positive. The things that I was doing, I was not going to stop. So that was my expiration date when that door closed. You know, I, I wanted to get out so bad. It was, not, it was out of my control. You know, and the only thing I could do was just kind of, you know, look up and think about what I had done and, you know, kind of ask God to forgive me for what I had done and ask God to help me. And I wanted it all right then. I, I, every time the, the God came to the door and put the key in the door, I was hoping that there was somebody that was coming in to free me. And that was just the first day, you know, and I... <laughs> That was the first day. <laughs> I ended up doing 465 more after that. My goodness. But Prison was his expiration date. Uh, that is, of course, the old Michael Vick. He looked to God, but it didn't take long for him to realize that God wasn't going to unlock his cell and live his life for him. Vick realized his life required personal responsibility and obedience. You know, I always looked at myself as, you know, God's child, you know, I'm praying at night, like saying the hardest prayers that I can pray. But I know it's a mutual respect and a relationship that you have to have with God. You know, I, I didn't want to disrespect that relationship and put a strain on it. So, I, you know, I just told myself I got to be patient. You know, those doors are not going to open when I want them to. And, you know, I have to, you know, put my focus on things that's going to be positive reinforcement when I get out. And, you know, it wasn't until then when, I opened, when they opened the doors and they let me out. You know, it was a new era for me, you know, in my whole walk. Vic discussed overcoming life's obstacles. It was so far-fetched, you know, because all you hear about is the reasons that you can't make it. You know, you know you're small, you know, you, you know the, the NFL doesn't, um, you know, have, they have a limited number of black quarterbacks, you know, which is, you know, something that, you know, is, is, should be overlooked. And something that I wanted to change, and, and, I, and I did. And I was, I was just kind of able to just shift my focus to, you know, doing all the right things, and I did it. But just in the position that I was in, why would you, why would you risk that? Why would you sacrifice that um, for things that, you know, really didn't make no sense or was morally wrong? And, you know, so I'd look at it in that sense. You know, I felt like I should have been more of a mature person and, and was, should have been able to not be a product of my environment, which I didn't want to be. Here are some things that have changed about post-prison Michael Vick and what his plans are post-football. You know, I try to think before I speak. I try to think before I react. Um, I try to weigh all the options, pros and cons, before any decision is made on anything in my life. You know, I think I'm a better teacher, you know, starting with my kids. And, you know, a better leader, you know, in the locker room. And just, you know, with my overall family, I feel like I'm responsible for them. And every decision that they make, I want it to be a reflection of themselves and a reflection of me. So that's a 
great responsibility within itself. Um, and I feel like it's, it's more out there for me. I feel like football was just only a facet of my life, and I was able to accomplish that goal. And I think it's time to kind of put that to rest and try to figure out what my, you know, my next calling is. And I'm just going to let it flow. I'm going to let it come. I'm not going to rush it. I'm not going to ask God to give it all to me at one time. I'm going to just let it happen. And he's letting it happen. And again, this talk was at Oakwood University Church in Huntsville, Alabama. And he's showing up at churches and gatherings around the country. And I think it's almost going to be a ministry of sorts for him, talking to young men about their choices, especially when they get blessings, because that's when you can really just throw everything away. And talking about that environment, and you don't have to be a product of your environment. It's nonsense. You can actually affect the environment. And you've got to teach people this. Or, well, what other options are there for them? Michael Vick's story, by the way, after serving his sentence, he signed with the Philadelphia Eagles in 2009. As a member of the Eagles for five years, he enjoyed the greatest statistical season of his career and was named to the fourth Pro Bowl in 2010. His official retirement from professional football came in 2017, and he was immediately hired by Fox Sports as an analyst for Fox NFL kickoff. Michael Vick's story, by the way, we just love because... Well, if you believe in redemption and you don't have to be a person of faith to believe in it, uh, then you're rooting for people when they, when they make bad decisions. And here on this show, we root for people all the way through, all the way down the line. This is Lee Habib, Michael Vick's story, a story of redemption, of love, and we'll be bringing you more like it here on Our American Stories. Go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do Share it with friends. And if you have stories like this in your life, and I know you do, you just do. Share them. Don't be ashamed of them. Share them. Share them loud. Own your failures. Own your mistakes. It makes you more human. It allows you to connect with your fellow man. Again, this is Our American Story. continue here on Our American Stories. And next, we bring you the story of Martin Licious and his company, Tempest Tours, an unconventional Texas-based tour company. Storm chasers, those wild individuals who ride around in search of the weather most people try to avoid. What kind of person does it take to do this? Well, let's find out with Martin Licious. I first became interested in... uh severe weather growing up in North Texas where we have big storms on a regular basis when I was a kid probably about four or five years old um, we would have storms that come through that uh, the lightning would hit so close to our house that our whole house would shake also right down the street from our house was a TV station called WBAP TV Harold Taft was the meteorologist on staff and uh, Harold is actually credited 
with uh, creating the American weathercast, TV weathercast. Before him, they would simply read the text. They'd re read the, uh, the forecast off a piece of paper, and then he, uh, being a, a full-blown meteorologist, decided to use maps to describe to the viewers what was happening. Uh, believe me, we're going to. Um, the computer will paint this on. Kind of fun to watch it, so let's just do that for a second. See? All the color comes on, all the symbols. All right. Still getting a little light uh, freezing drizzle up here in uh, Gage, Oklahoma. And so I'd watch him a lot, and uh, they had this old-fashioned black-and-white radar. And he'd show that quite a bit as well. And uh, I think that was kind of when I really became interested in weather. And then when I was about 12 years old, um, I asked my mom if I could build a weather station on top of, the, uh, of our house. She said, sure, just be careful. And I uh, started plotting storms as they came through uh, on a map. And I entered a science fair and uh, won the competition. I built a 3D model of a supercell thunderstorm. And the winner is... Eventually I got a car and uh, decided that I'd go out and film storms. And then about the same time that I did that, uh, I heard that there was you know, these guys called storm chasers and I met some of them. And then from there, that point on, I, I did it quite a bit. Martin eventually founded Tempest Tours, a company that lets you book storm chasing expeditions like cruises. That came about in, we started it in 2000. I'd say around 1999, I decided I was going to do it um, because I didn't think that, I didn't say to myself, let's start a storm chasing tour company. I just uh, was receiving a lot of requests from regular normal people uh, to go storm chasing with me and they were usually not able to go because of work. So I thought, what if we created tours and then we put out the schedule year in advance, people could get off work and actually go. And that's when uh, Tempest Tours was born uh, back around 2000. You know, storm chasing is kind of like fishing. Um, you know, there's a good time of year to go fishing, right? Um, but you go out and you go out several days fishing and some days are good and some days are not good. So it's a lot like that. Um, on a tour, you know, they're typically run four to 11 days in length. And of course, the longer the tour, the greater chance of seeing good storms, just like if you went on an 11-day fishing trip versus a four-day fishing trip. Um, basically, they get up in the morning, we tell the guests when to meet us. Uh, we stay at motels, of course, and we'll meet in um, the lobby or, or somewhere, and we'll do a little weather briefing and uh, tell them what we, we show the maps and so forth, and we tell them why we're going there, what we can expect that day. Then we all load up, head to that target, uh, wait for storms to develop, and then uh, we, we track the one that we feel has the greatest potential of producing a tornado or just being a really good supercell. And you know, sometimes you'll have three or four storms form in your target area, and you have to be very careful to put, pick this the right one. And so we kind of sometimes hold back a little bit and wait until the best one, what we think will be the best one to form. And we've been very successful at that. And then we track it and uh, if it's not moving too fast, we're able to stop several times and take pictures of it, including tornadoes and lightning and so forth. 
which you can see uh, at our website. You know, people, a common question that people ask is how close do we get? And I say close enough to take great pictures, but far enough to be safe. So the best way to see how close we get is to go to our website or go to our Facebook page and just see the pictures that we've taken and some of our guests have taken and you can get a good idea of how close we get. Now while they're in the van, along the way there are uh, there's a screen in the van and so they're watching what the tour director is doing and they're seeing, you know, the models develop. That's Kim George, Tempest Tours customer relations manager. So he will be explaining those along the way, saying this is what the storm is doing, this is where we need to be. And so he will constantly keep them updated as they are going towards the target. And so they will wait, but when they actually get to visually see the storm, you know, coming up in the foreground, everybody gets very excited. So we get um, closer to the storm, we track it. Sometimes you have to wait a little while, but most of the time you're going straight towards the storm. Most storms develop in the afternoon. And um, once you are on the storm, then uh, depending on how the storm is moving, you position and you reposition and you reposition again because storms don't stand still most of the time. <laughs> when we're chasing a storm, we follow it till it's the end or till you lose the light. And sometimes that'll happen. And if you can't chase it when it's dark. Sometimes they do. It depends on the storm. If it's developing tornadoes, sometimes we have, we did this past year, uh, chase a storm even after dark and they actually saw some nighttime tornadoes, which was um, very good for the group. They thought that was amazing. And the only reason you can see them is because the lightning, when it strikes, you can actually see the tornadoes below the storm. So that's basically a typical day. And then we uh, get lodging nearby and they stay somewhere for the night. And then they also are developing a plan to, you know, begin that all over again the next day. We are not a luxury tour company. <laughs> uh, we have to tell them that honestly, you know, when you're out chasing and anybody who does that would know, uh, you'll be in Podunkies, America somewhere. And there's not a lot of options when it comes to places to stay. And sometimes there's not a lot of options for places to eat. And so you do the best you can with the environment that you're in. And we are very good about finding places that you can stay. But every once in a while, you know, at Motel 6, it may be the only place that you can stay for the night. So you do. Um, because the important thing is not the luxury of what we do, it's the chasing itself. And, and our guests do realize that, that you can't always be in, you know, a really swanky hotel. But that's not why you go to chase with us. You just need a bed, you need a place to get some rest, and then you can start the next day fresh. On a down day, uh, we will... Uh head towards the next day's target so a down day may be followed by a severe weather potential day so we'll head towards that target and on the way stop at places that are interesting things that you know i've seen since i've been with the company that i never knew existed there is a place in kansas that's called uh, monument rock and it's just this sandstone formation in the middle of nowhere and you go on it and it's just crazy uh, it could be the Badlands in South Dakota, Mount Rushmore, Devil's Tower, Palo Duro Canyon in the Texas Panhandle, 
or you might stop at a weather service office and take a tour. So we're always doing something interesting uh, every single day. We know this is our guest uh, vacation time. They want to see something interesting. We try to make it special when we're not on a storm. I mean, they're all coming for the storms. I mean, they don't really care about the other ones if they have a storm to follow. <laughs> so, but yeah, we try to make the times that we're not, you know, in a hard chase for the storm, we try to make those um, times as memorable as we can. And you are listening to Martin Licious and Kim George. And Martin is the founder of Tempest Tours. And Kim works there in the customer relations department. And if you want to see a storm, well, then Tempest Tours is the place to go. And TempestTours.com is the website address, TempestTours.com. And go on there and take a look at the gallery section and see what customers have seen. And so if you want to get up and close to a tornado, and I've always wanted to see one, we broadcast south of Memphis here in Oxford, Mississippi. Been here about a dozen years, probably about 15 uh, tornado warnings and storm shelter trips. But I'm always popping my head out to see one, and it just doesn't happen. One came within about uh, five miles of our town, cut across Highway 6, and then ultimately made its way up to Birmingham and up to Tuscaloosa, one of the big killers of all time, one of the worst tornadoes of all time in American history. So again, Martin Licious with Tempest Tours, his story, and so many Americans who are just fascinated by, well, just turbulence and tough weather. Martin's story here on Our American Story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and now it's time for one of our favorite recurring features, the story of a song. And we've done every kind of song from every type of musical background, from Pink Floyd's Another Brick in the Wall to Kenny Chesney's There Goes My Life, The Rolling Stones' Gimme Shelter, and Ray Charles's Georgia On My Mind. And now it's time for Greg Hengler's take on our favorite recurring feature. If you've been to a wedding any time between now and 2008, Chances are you've heard Beyonce's get out of your seat and dance anthem about men's unwillingness to propose or commit called Single Ladies Put a Ring on It. Putting the lyrics aside, this song would be nothing without the irresistible and exuberant beat that sinks deep into your soul. The song is driven by staccato bounce-based hand claps and a keyboard. This hypnotic and irresistibly contagious beat gets everybody on the dance floor. What is it about this song that does that like no other? After some digging, I was taken on a fast, fun, and fascinating journey, linking what we hear in Beyonce's Single Ladies to what is heard in almost every black church to this very day. Let's begin by taking a trip back to the start and work our way up to Beyonce. Here's music historian David King. A lot of people, when they think of gospel music, think of the sound of the vocal, uh, they think of spiritual aspects of gospel, but they very often don't think enough about the rhythmic aspects and the driving beat. I can't sit down. I can't sit down. 
Gospel has that dun, 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 right? It's influenced by boogie woogie and other styles. And that pounding, sort of frenzied aspect of gospel is really important to its spiritual aspects. It's, it's what caused people in churches to to catch the spirit and to go wild. But it directly got transferred into rock and roll music through the gospel fervor and energy of people like Little Richard. Oh my soul! We're gonna do a little thing for you. Saturday night, and I just got paid. historian Todd Boyd. A guy like Little Richard, as with any sort of black artist from that era, is giving you the black church as well as the black juke joint. Here's Little Richard's drummer, Charles Connor. Richard said, I want to bring you to the train station. I want you to hear something. So that listen to the train. The train's going off. He said, a wife when they pick up speed. He said, what kind of notes are those? I say, those are eight notes. He said, well, that's what I want you to play behind me. Here's the man responsible for the Motown sound, record producer Lamont Dozer. A new form of rock and roll, as we call it, came into play during the 60s when that was ushered in by the companies like Motown. When there was a nice backbeat, beautifully sounding, good balanced sounding records, all America. Here's Annie Lennox and Ben Harper. Motown music brought my world into abundance of color and soulfulness. Because those melodic lines and those fantastic chord changes and those beats, as soon as you heard the very first notes, you knew exactly what this was. It came out sounding like God. Smokey Robinson. On the very first day of Motown, Barry Gordy was there and four other people, and I, I was among them. And he said, okay, I'm starting this record company. We are not gonna only make black music. We're gonna make music for everybody. We're gonna make music for the world. We're gonna make music with some great beats and some great stories. And we're gonna always do quality music. Smile. 
We'll go places in the South, taking our, our Motortown reviews down there, you know. There's a big stage in the middle of the hall, and white people on one side and black people on the other side. It's segregated, but, you know, maybe you can do something about it. The next time we got to those places, the kids, they were dancing with each other. They were talking, intermingling, holding hands. His little black boy holding a little white girl's hand or vice versa. That was his idea of what he wanted his record company to be. Here's producer Greg Fillingaines. The basic elements or the main elements of the Motown sound had to do with a very solid but controlled gospel sound. It was rooted in, in a, a, a big beat, lots of bass, tambourine, drums, you know, very, very rhythmic. I said I love someone, but I know where I'm going to find them. James Brown and the JBs in the mid-60s changed the sound of, of what dance music is. If you listen to, to um, Live at the Apollo, it's a great band, it's a great show. It's still very bluesy, very churchy, the show is. Come on! Here's Sheila E., Arthur Baker, Questlove, and Q-Tip. It was the drum playing. It was funkier than, than Motown. Motown wasn't really funk. That, to me, is the hypnotic power of the James Brown effect. He influenced Sly, he influenced Stevie, he influenced Prince, he influenced dance music. Indeed, he did. Now, let's take this back to where we started. Here's the hit-making songwriting production team for single ladies, Harrius the Dream Nash and Chris Tricky Stewart. All aboard for New York City! Yeah, yeah, started this beat just a drum and the, and the quirky sound that, that we heard and I just sat in the back I just thought about if I was Beyonce I would say what I'm thinking, I'm quiet. He's not I'm giving, not giving me no, no love. Yeah. He's not, he's not, we're not in it nothing. together. He's just, I'm giving him nothing. I'm Jedi. Trick stopped the beat. And I look at him, I was like, what's wrong with you, man? What are you doing? Hey, what are you doing? <laughs> and he's like, what do you mean? I was going to start another beat. I was like, yeah, you just go and sit in it. Like, like, hey, I be right. He's like, I got the whole thing. He's like, I just wrote the whole song. I got lost on my lips, a man on my hips, get me tighter than my dairy on the anatomy is there. The heart's there, the lungs, the the stomach, you know, the, the, the I just have to put the legs on. Don't pay him any attention. Cause you had to turn turn. Now you gonna learn what it really feels like to miss me. She came by 
to just kind of poke her head in and kind mm-hmm. of hear what it was. And she was like, oh. And she immediately, there was no lyrics typed out. Like, there was no nothing. It was like, yeah, let me get with that. Like, and, and the <laughs> yeah. next thing I knew, she was on the other side of the booth singing. singing and we were like, yeah, this is, this is, this is, this is happening. He's thinking about how to connect the dots lyrically. I'm thinking about B is from Houston. I'm thinking about Southern. I'm thinking about, like, to me, it's a church beat. So I just started with the. It's like, that's a sanctified yeah, she's beat. A that, she's a Southern girl. I could see the paper fans in the church and the, and the wooden benches and the, and the reverend and the baptisms that are going on and knowing what's happening after that. That's everything I get from one sound. So I'm like, how do I get this Southern girl on the dance floor? I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Greg. And there you have it. Who would have thunk it? From the gospel pews of the American South, throw in a lot of that great rhythmic talent of Beyonce and, of course, the producers. And we're talking about Tyrius the Dream, Nash, and Chris Tricky Stewart. The story of a song, Single Ladies, put a ring on it, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to the great Chris Stapleton cover one of the most memorable Southern rock anthems of all time. It's also one of the most covered songs of all time. The song is Freebird, and today we bring you the story of Leonard Skinner. Here's Jesse. In the summer of 1964, a group of teenagers from Jacksonville, Florida, started the American Southern rock group Leonard Skinner. Ronnie Van Zant, Bob Burns, Alan Collins, Gary Rossington, and Larry Junstrom originally named the band My Backyard, but it was a mocking tribute to their PE teacher, who was notorious for enforcing the school's policy against boys having long hair, that they would come up with the name Leonard Skinner. Gary Rossington is a founding member who plays rhythm and lead guitar. We really got in a lot of fist fights, really, for having long hair. We used to play clubs, and the sailors would come out and wait for us because we had, I mean, long hair was touching your ears. That was long back then. That was when the Beatles were freaks because they had such long hair, you know. It was against school rules to have long hair then, so we put Vaseline and Brill cream, and we'd grease it back and plaster it down, and, and it would be good. All the teachers thought we had short hair, but then at gym, you had to take a shower. It was mandatory. You had to take a shower after gym. So we'd take a shower, and Leonard Skinner was our gym coach. That's Leonard Skinner. 
spelled right. And so he would walk through the showers every day, checking up on his students, and he'd see us taking a shower and see the Vaseline out of our hair, and it would touch our ears. It would touch our cheek. It would touch our shoulders, you know. But so he finally kicked us out. and kicked, Well, he suspended us and kicked us out so long that we finally quit. When I was 16, that was the legal age you could quit when you were 16, so we quit then. Because we were playing the church dances and the teen clubs and the and the clubs around town, and we had to be cool, man. The last time they were kicked out of school, they never looked back. Leonard Skinner would continue to perform at church dances, schools, and venues all over the southeastern states before making it big. The recordings for their first album began in 1971 at the famous Muscle Shoals Sound Studio in Muscle Shoals, Alabama with Jimmy Johnson, one of the original Swampers, as the producer. Our friend found this band in Jacksonville called Leonard Skinner. I was a sucker to want to cut that band immediately. So we signed them. They had no money. And I remember they, they would come up here and they'd check in a truck stop where they'd get in fights with the truckers because they're long hair. And basically, all they had to eat was peanut butter sandwiches the whole time. But I, I love this band. I didn't know if it'd be a hit, but I'll tell you one thing. If you listen to those songs, some of the best rock and roll songs I've ever heard. If I leave here tomorrow Skinner would record 17 tracks in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, including what would become one of their biggest hits of all time with Freebird. This is not the version of Freebird that most of us are used to hearing on the radio. That one was recorded in Atlanta in 1973. This is the original version. After two years of recording with Jimmy Johnson at Muscle Shoals without getting the attention from a major record label, the Skinnerd boys weren't happy. Roger Hawkins and David Hood are both part of the original Swampers, the studio musicians and music producers that once worked at the Muscle Shoals Sound Studio. The tapes that Jimmy had done, everybody had turned down. And uh, I think one of the reasons why uh, they had turned it down is the, the manager of the group or something was taking the tape around and somehow he had gotten the tape twisted on the reel and so everywhere they'd go and play the tape it was real muffled. it was real muffled, muffled I mean, it was playing the wrong side they were of the playing tape the wrong side of the tape and 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 the Skinner boys thought that uh Jimmy or somebody had done something to sabotage their music cuz they couldn't understand why it sounded so bad everywhere they would go play it and the the uh manager bless his heart just didn't really know and uh, so it was turned down by everyone I mean, Freebird, all these songs were recorded with, yeah. in this studio first. After playing nearly a decade without a record contract, the band was understandably frustrated. 
but they played on. And when we return, the story of Leonard Skinner continues right here on Our American Stories. Mama told me when I was young, sit beside me, my only son, and listen closely to what I say. stories and now we continue with the story of Leonard Skinnerd here's Jesse soon Leonard Skinnerd was discovered by musician songwriter and producer Al Cooper of blood sweat and tears in Atlanta here again is guitarist Gary Rossington we were playing Finocchio's bar we had done all the clubs and stuff in Florida and and southern Georgia, and we finally made it up to Atlanta. And we played this place, Finocchio's, for, you know, two or three, four months. I mean, a week, and then we'd leave. And one night we were playing, so we looked down, and there was Al Cooper in the audience, and we were playing. Boy, and we saw him, and we went, that's Al Cooper, we better play good. You know, so we started playing good, so he came up on the break and said, hey, you guys are real good. Will you play our next song, and I can record it and take it to my label i want to start a record company called sounds of the south a subsidiary of mca and we went sure so he recorded us and flew to la the next day and played it for all the guys way back when and they liked us and they kind of signed us or he signed us to that label but that's how it happened and that same night is uh we were walking out the door it was one of them fight nights and this guy got beat up, and we got beat up, and there was people thrown in jail. And Al Cooper thought, oh, what have I done? He was pulling his hair out and, and thinking, oh, man. But he thought we were cool because cause we weren't doing nothing. We were just leaving. They cut us down because of our hair. 
and it wasn't like we started trouble, we just wouldn't take no. Shortly after this fateful encounter with Al Cooper, the band went back into the recording studio, this time at Studio One outside of Atlanta, where they would record their debut album, titled Pronounced Leonard Skinnerd, which was released on August 13th, 1973. With hit songs like Tuesday's Gone, Gimme Three Steps, and a new recording of Freebird, the album quickly put Skinnerd on the rock and roll map. But there was one song on this album that almost didn't make the cut. Here's Leonard Skinner guitarist, Ed King. We worked up a song called Simple Man. We went into the studio and said, Al, I want you to hear this tune. And we played it for Al, and he says, oh, I'm not going to let you guys record that. And uh, Ronnie says, well, you got your car outside. Why don't you just go out in your car and go on home, and we'll just record it here without you. And Al said, well, you guys can't do that. And so Ronnie escorted him out to the car. He said, you either get out right now or we're going to have some trouble. So Al Cooper left, and we stayed there that night and recorded Simple Man all by ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it turns out to my, you know, this day, it's my one of my favorite Skinner songs of all time. You know, And I think even now it's one of Al Cooper's favorites. You know, he came back and ended up playing organ on it. You know, But uh, everybody makes mistakes. Lead singer Ronnie Van Zant's grandmother had died around the same time as guitarist Gary Rossington's mother passed. The two started talking. Rossington came up with the chord progression while Van Zant wrote the lyrics based on the advice that the women had given them over the years. They wrote the song in an hour. Mama told me When I was young Who sat beside me My only son Listen closely Here's the isolated vocal track from Ronnie Van Zant. Oh, take your time. Don't live too fast. Troubles will come. And they will pass. Go find a woman. Yeah, yeah. And you'll find love. And don't forget, son. There is someone up above And be a simple kind of man Or be something you love and understand Baby, be a simple kind of man Oh, won't you do this for me, son, if you can Simple Man became Skinner's third best-selling digital song after Sweet Home Alabama and Freebird, with over 1.5 million sold. Freebird was, is, and will always be Leonard Skinner's signature song. Despite having three guitarists, the track opens with an organ as the lead instrument, giving the guitars more impact when they arrive. In early versions of the song, this section was done on piano, but producer Al Cooper convinced the band that the organ was the way to go. 
Cooper himself played the instrument on this track. He happened to have some experience, as he's the same guy who came up with the organ section on Bob Dylan's Like a Rolling Stone. But the record company didn't want Freebird on the album because they thought it was too long and radio stations wouldn't play it. The album version runs 9 minutes 8 seconds long. Here again is guitarist Gary Rossington. It was weird, you know, because back at that time, everybody said you had to cut 3 minute songs or 3 and a half, 4 minutes with the tops or that you'd get no airplay. And we cut this song 9 minutes and live it's 15, but but on Studio Cut was nine, and they went, no, this song will never get airplay. You can't do it. Producers and the managers and everybody in the whole world but us, and we thought this is the song we wrote and meant and from our hearts. And But, you know, we were told that would never be. And we said, well, we don't care. It goes over good live. You know, it's a good uh, live song, and we don't care if it, you know, we, you can play the other ones for radio, but we want this one. But this is it, and we weren't going to change it. We were, you know, southern redneck rebels that we weren't changing our ways. Hell no, we ain't forgetting either. At over a full minute longer than Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven, the lyrics end at 4 minutes 57 seconds into the track. The last four minutes comprise perhaps the most famous instrumental passage in rock history, allowing guitarists Alan Collins, Ed King, and Gary Rossington to jam for extended periods long after most songs would peter out. Now let's hear just the lead guitars. And now bring in the full band. Now just the drums. Or just the bass. Bring the drums back in. guitar, polish it up, and you've just created one of the most popular American rock songs of all time. In one of the very few recordings of the lead singer actually speaking, Ronnie Van Zant gives a rare glimpse into his take on this timeless rock anthem. When we added the guitar arrangement on the end of it, uh, that seemed to really pick up, and like the song goes, like Freebirds, you know, right at, right at the end of the lyric, it's like, I want to fly high like Freebird, and then the guitar starts soaring. There's something about, uh, you know, playing in front of 50,000 people, and seeing them still get up for that song, seeing them stand up, and just seeing the people get up and uh, put their hands together for a song that you wrote, uh, the lyric content Freebird is based on, on the idea of uh, you know everybody being free. Uh, to me, there's nothing freer than a, than a bird, you know, just flying wherever he wants to go. And uh, I don't know, that's what this this country is all about, you know, being free. And uh, I think everybody wants to be a free bird. In the United States, Freebird wasn't released as a single until a year after the album came out. By that time, Sweet Home Alabama had already been released, 
and the single version of Freebird was edited down, though the long version from the album has always been more popular. And when we return, the story of Leonard Skinner continues right here on Our American Stories. stories and we're listening to the story of Leonard Skinner, one of the best American Southern rock and roll bands of all time. Let's continue the story. One, two, three. Skinner's fan base continued to grow rapidly throughout 1973, largely due to their opening slot on the Who's Quadrophenia Tour in the United States. Their 1974 follow-up album called Second Helper cemented the band's breakthrough. Then bassist and future guitarist for Leonard Skinner at the time, Ed King, describes how the opening track on that album Sweet Home Alabama, came to him in a dream. Ronnie and I were li- used to live together, and I'm sitting on my bed playing this guitar, and he walks in the room and sits down in the bed next to me and puts his arm around me and goes, Man, he said, I love you, but he said, Man, you're just the worst bass player I've ever played with. And I knew in my heart he was right, because I listened to the album, and there's so many things that on the album that I just wasn't happy with as far as the bass part. It's like it was hard for me to get a feel for some of it, you know. So I said, well, what do you want, what do you want to do? He said, look, let's go out and talk to Leon. He's working at an ice cream factory here in town, and we'll see if we can't talk him into coming back and switch you over to guitar. I said, all right. So I went out that night and talked Leon into coming back. Two days later, we started rehearsal with me on guitar. And that day, Ronnie and I wrote Sweet Home, Alabama, rehearsal. So we were, I mean, I was inspired. You know, I was back on my main instrument, you know. And that night I went home and went to bed, and uh, the entire guitar solo came to me in a dream, note for note. Yeah, that's why that guitar solo, I only changed two notes in the whole solo to this day, but the rest of it is note for note because it came out in a dream, you know. I always sleep with a guitar next to the bed, and I woke up in the middle of the night after I'd heard this. And in my dream, I'd seen the fingerings and everything. It was, it was very tangible. So I woke up, picked up the guitar, and it just fit so perfect. And I went out to rehearsal the next day, and it just, man... Just fit like a glove, you know. Sweet 
It reached number eight on the U.S. charts in 1974 and was the band's second hit single. In March of 75, Skinner released their third album, Nothing Fancy, with songs like Saturday Night Special and Made in the Shade. Skinner's fifth album, released in October of 77 called Street Survivors, would reach double platinum with hits like What's Your Name and That Smell. Ronnie Van Zant's inspiration for that smell was the reckless indulgences of the band members, culminating in the evening when guitarist Gary Rossington got drunk and high, crashing his new Ford Torino into an oak tree along Mandarin Road in Jacksonville, Florida. October 20th, 1977, only three days after the release of the Street Survivors album and five shows in to their most successful headlining tour to date, Leonard Skinner's tour plane ran out of fuel near the end of their flight from Greenville, South Carolina. Realizing that the plane was out of fuel, the pilots attempt an emergency landing on a small airstrip. Despite their effort, at approximately 6.47 p.m., the plane skimmed about 100 yards along the top of a tree line before smashing into a large tree and splitting into pieces near Gillsburg, Mississippi. The crash occurred only 300 yards short of the airstrip. Most of the survivors had been seated towards the back of the plane. The dead include the pilot and the co-pilot, lead singer Ronnie Van Zant, guitarist Steve Gaines, his sister and backup singer Cassie Gaines, and assistant road manager Dan Kilpatrick. Local farmers were the first to respond on that dark October night in Mississippi. Helicopter stopped and was hovering right straight back through here. From that tree line in the very back, it's a quarter of a mile. Uh, it was a lot wetter that night. It was a lot wetter that night, and uh, we had to uh, cross a blackwater slough. And... Didn't really know what to do, I mean, you know. Never seen anything like that. It, we got busy. Well, we didn't know who it was. Didn't have a clue. I, I was thinking to myself, what, what is a bunch of hippies doing on an airplane? They don't look like they can afford a ticket. I expected to see all dead people looking at these woods. I was amazed that there were that many survivors. A lot of folks was just in a small like, accordion, mashed together and down in. You know, we would move a couple people and there's somebody else down there. They were moaning and saying, like, get me out of here, you know, like that. As I was walking out, a friend of mine from Magnolia uh, ran up to me and uh, told me that the plane was Leonard Skinner's plane. And that just, I mean, I just was taken back by it. But uh, he immediately then says, but don't worry, I think Leonard made it out. And uh, Van Zant, and well, you know, you already know all the details about he died. But nobody that was uh, alive uh, when we got there died, and I was proud of that. I was amazed that there were that many survivors. I believe in higher authority, and 
And that's the only thing I can account for. Survivors included singer Leslie Hawkins, bass guitarist Leon Wilkeson, guitarist Andy Collins, and guitarist Gary Rossington. At the time of the crash, it was the only people who died were right up front. And it was, uh, it was Dean and me and Ronnie. I was in between Ronnie and Dean. And the other side was Steve and Cassie, and Alan was in between them. And me and Alan were in between all four people that died. So we always, you know, it's extra heavy to us that we were right there, and we didn't die, and they did. But, you know, that's just spate. And I just got scars all over me. I had all my bones, not all of them, but just about all of them broke. Both, both legs and both wrists and both arms, upper arms and, and wrists, and my pelvic bone and all my ribs and uh, my feet and I don't know, just some means things. Everything was broke. Another survivor of the Skinnerd crash was Gene Odom, one of Ronnie Van Zant's best friends and bodyguard. I knew what we were in for in my mind and I was mad as hell. Them pilots were putting us in a situation, putting me in it. At 645.49 seconds in 55 Victimite, we're at 4.5. We had descended from 6,000 feet in that couple of minutes to 4,500 feet, coming in at a 50-degree angle. And I heard somebody say, trees, and that was the first top of the trees that the plane hit, and I turned to head back to my seat. And when we return, the story of Leonard Skinner continues, right here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we're listening to the story of Leonard Skinner. We just heard about the tragic plane crash that killed the band's lead singer and several others. There were six fatalities and 20 survivors. Gene Odom had been thrown from the plane and broke his neck. His skin was badly burned and had one eye blinded by phosphorus from a de-icing flare that had been on board. After a month of recovery in the hospital, the realization of what had happened was just setting in. So they took me out to the uh, cemetery. And I said, what, 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 where are we going? They said, well, you're going to visit Ronnie. Ronnie didn't make it. And uh, that's the first I knew right then that Ronnie didn't make it. I didn't know it for the whole month. Nobody told me. I guess my, you know, they said that your condition was so bad that they didn't want to, to try to set you back any. And um, 
sad situation. And I was, you know, yeah, I was, I was uh, panicky, freaking out. I was just pissed off about uh, being in that situation. Being in a tub, 60,000-pound tub, is going to hit the ground. Uh, yeah, I'm still mad about it. It still pisses me off. For a while, it was a big shock. I mean, I was real upset um, that he didn't make it. Still am upset he didn't make it, you know, and uh, really I kind of like, probably deep, deep down inside, I blame myself a whole lot. Billy Powell started Leonard Skinner as a roadie around 1970, but he became part of the band as a keyboardist when the group heard him playing the opening piano notes on the original version of Freebird, recorded in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. The band had no idea that he was a classically trained pianist. He also survived that plane crash. Everything we wanted back then, you know, material-wise and all that, but uh, just, you know, everybody in the band was lacking that one thing that we all, most of us have found now, especially me, and that's Jesus, you know. And I wish, I wish somebody had told me about him, you know, like after the airplane crash, I didn't realize, you know, why God kept me on this earth, and that was, you know, kept me alive, and that was to serve him. It's just that when the airplane was going down, instead of everybody panicking, there was 26 people on it, and, and when it went down, instead of everybody panicking, everybody started praying, I mean, quietly, real quietly started praying and I to this day truly believe that's why 20 people out of 26 survived because they're saying God help me now you know I really believe that you know if you saw a picture of the airplane you would you'd know it was a miracle that 20 survived out of 26 I just went into a severe state of depression for three years and started drinking getting heavy into drugs and stuff and I had the money to buy all the drugs I wanted which was a, a, a big strike against me and um, I had you know I had all this material stuff that you know, I thought it was given to me by God at the time, you know, but uh, I know now that it was the devil, you know, and I just started drinking heavier and heavier. And uh, just about two years ago, I got my fourth DWI, that's how serious I got, and I went to jail for 30 days, and uh, I was alone in an eight-man jail cell, and the only thing I had to occupy myself with the whole time was a Bible that a brother of mine gave to me two days before I went in, not knowing that I was going to jail either. And he gave me a Bible, you know, it's like the Holy Spirit, you know, told him to give me a Bible. And that's all for eight for uh, thirty days. And that's all I did was read this Bible. And twenty days after reading it, just all day long, you know, just uh, reading the Bible from you know page one, Genesis, Exodus on. After about twenty days, I felt the presence of Jesus come in that cell for real. And he's it's like he gently tapped me on the shoulder and said, "Brother Billy, when you come out of here, you know, when you get out of here, if you can go back to that life of sin and drugs and all that, and you will surely die, as it says in Romans six twenty three. And uh, either that or you can walk with me and be with me for eternity and be in paradise with me. And I accepted him right then. I started weeping and everything. And uh, God's been good to me ever since. Leonard Skinner disbanded after the tragedy, returning only on one occasion to perform an instrumental version of Freebird at Charlie Daniels Volunteer Jam 5 in January of 79. The surviving members were joined by Daniels and members of his band. And there sitting in the middle of the stage while they performed was an empty microphone for Ronnie Van Zandt. It was an incredibly emotional performance. Here again is Gene Odom, bodyguard and close friend of the late Ronnie Van Zandt. I wrote this in December 1977. I got to the hospital after the plane crash. It's gone, but will never be forgotten. A true Southern gentleman, I'm sure you'll agree, that's what Ronnie Van Zandt was to me. A singer, a writer, a friend of mine, who I will remember till my end of time. My dreams and memories will always represent 
the joyous times that Ronnie and I spent. He and Jesus both were common men. They both died working for what they believed in. God, you could not have asked for and received a finer man, I do believe. He sang of a bird that was free. That bird to me is a great man named Ronnie. If there is a heaven, and I hope there to be, I'm sure he is there so deservingly free. We were raised and grew up together day by day. As I travel through this life, I pray that we may meet again and be together someday. Your friend, Gene Odom. After I got to the hospital, I wrote that, and um, it wasn't until I got out of the hospital in 1977 that they told me Ronnie was dead. And um, the minute I walked out of the hospital, I uh, came out here to visit Ronnie. And today, uh, I'm back visiting him again. And a fella from up New York area came by and dropped this photograph off. You know, Ronnie's got a million fans and are constantly coming by here. It probably won't never stop. It's not the most joyous place for me to come visit because uh, I don't really think he's in there. I think he's just at another show, you know, doing another gig. And um, I personally won't never accept the fact that he's dead and gone. I, uh, I can't, you know. and. Um, you can see him in them photographs, and if you look hard enough, you can see him on stage. To me, he'll never be gone. In 1987, 10 years after the crash, Leonard Skinner reunited for a full-scale tour with five major members of the original band. Crash survivors Gary Rossington, Billy Powell, Leon Wilkeson, Artemis Pyle, along with guitarist Ed King, who had left the band two years before the crash, joined Ronnie Van Zant's younger brother, Johnny, who took over as the new lead singer and primary songwriter. 29 years after the crash, in 2006, Kid Rock introduced Leonard Skinner into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Ronnie Van Zant was the truth to me. He was a true Southern poet. He was the simple man that he sang about. And when you really get into those lyrics and you start to talk about him and I always say that Leonard Skinner is really um it's kind of Ronnie Van Zant's house to me but and it was built by a lot of hands a whole lot of hands great hands I'm talking about the west side of Jacksonville Florida you know uh, not, not 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 rich people not any money you know the wrong side of town and uh to me Leonard Skinner these guys were like uh kind of what a lot of the the guys in, in Britain and other places that, that absorbed this rock and roll blues music so well wanted to be, they wanted to be poor white boys from the South and knew how to pick and play like that. And these guys are the epitome of it to me. To go back to Ronnie, I think one of the most amazing things that I've learned about him is that he never wrote his lyrics down. And when you listen to these lyrics and the songs that, that he penned from Curtis Lowe to Tuesday's Gone, Ooh That Smell, Give Me Back My Bullets, Saturday Night Special, The Needle in the Spoon, What's Your Name, of course, the uh, national anthem of the South, Freebird. And you imagine a man that never wrote these lyrics down? I mean, that's, that's pretty incredible to me. And of course, Sweet Home Alabama. I mean, to me, that is probably the greatest song ever written. I mean, pound for pound, that song, Sweet Home Alabama, that lick Ed King wrote, 
I love it to death. I live by it. And I think, uh, you know, one of Ronnie's greatest lyrics was, if I leave here tomorrow, would you still remember me? And we do remember Ronnie. And we do remember Alan Collins, Steve and Cassie Gaines, and Dean Kilpatrick. And it's long overdue for these uh, Southern boys, you know, flag-waving, simple people to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Leonard Skinner. They kept on playing, even when nobody wanted to buy their first attempt at cutting an album. The plane crash that killed their lead singer and other bandmates couldn't stop them. And even though the remaining members of Leonard Skinner announced that 2018 would be their last tour, the music will live on forever. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. I don't know. 